And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we're doing a portable poetry episode. Yay! And what is the name of our poem today? And what book does it come from, Miss Mags? We're going to be reading or talking about A Song of Someplace Yet to Fall by Rika Aoki from her, I think, 2015 poetry collection, Why Dust Shall Never Settle Upon This Soul, which is an extremely good poetry collection. Yes, and just a quick disclaimer, usually we read the poem out loud for you guys. We're only going to read a part of this poem because we discovered that no part of this collection is published online, and we don't want to give her work away for free. So you're going to have to go look at the book go to your local library. Libraries are awesome. And it's a really good collection. It is worth spending your money and your time on to read the whole thing. And again, local libraries, they they help authors. So you don't even have to spend your money. All right. What can one do when brilliant friends who remain brilliant leave? The Egyptian astrologer encanting psalms of forgotten souls. Gone. The space-time composer with pocket universe of beat-matched LEDs away. The enlightenment weaver threading certain and unfallen yarns, never to look back. What can one do when those who taste prophecy in a teaspoon feel symphonies in a Van Wiest cul-de-sac hear colors and mist the coldest February gray? Add a pronoun, find nothing, worth another thought? Grab the mic, cue the karaoke. What else could this be but a song? So beautiful. The ending kind of reminds me of like a siren. Do you want to go stanza by stanza and just kind of unpack this? Because this poem is a little bit more opaque, I think, than some of the other poems that we've read. Yeah, it's also a lot longer than some of the poems that we've read, which isn't a bad thing, definitely. I'm just wondering if maybe we might want to take it in bigger chunks for time's sake. Okay. So what stands out to you in this first part that we just read, Maggie? I think I'm almost reminded of an elegy of some sort. We're talking about all of these friends who are gone for one reason or another. But then we end with a celebration almost. Grab the mic, cue the karaoke. What else could this be but a song? We're starting out to me in a place that's tonally a little bit bittersweet. And I find that an interesting setup to everything that comes later. That is really interesting that you said an elegy because... I kind of feel like the line, the Egyptian astrologer encanting psalms of forgotten souls. There's a large theme of death here, right? And of course, that's because things are going away. And we're talking about friends specifically who left. But it's not explicitly stated that these friends are dead, just that they left and that there is some sort of grieving. But the idea of an Egyptian astrologer and counting psalms of forgotten souls reminds me a lot of the Egyptian dead mythology. And you're right about the grabbing the mic, cue the karaoke, that too to me. It reminds me of a memorial service because memorials are typically a little bit more joyful and like a celebration of life. And I think that works well because for those that don't know, um, Aoki is a trans woman 
Gentlemen, and we are doing this poem in part because it's Pride Month and we're here to celebrate queerness. So I to me that 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 lines grab the mic, cue the karaoke, what else could this be but a song? Like codes very queer to me. Another thing that reminds me of death, and I don't know why, but the coldest February gray for some reason, really invokes this funeral vibe. (laughs) I guess looking back on it, and I mean, I read it the same way, so like this isn't necessarily, but maybe an alternate reading is also just like, there's also this bittersweetness, I think, of an idea that like people in your life aren't permanent. Like she opens the poem talking about brilliant friends who remain brilliant. So to me, that sort of signifies the fact that those friends are just elsewhere right now and maybe that elsewhere is death but you know there she does talk a lot about the different ways that people can leave you know like in the parentheses this has gone away never to look back so it's almost like a memorial service to me almost for friends who are gone for multiple reasons maybe not just passed on and I think that that makes a lot of sense because I think that even when a friendship ends there's still a grieving process even if they're still you know around in the world they're remaining brilliant but they're just remaining brilliant elsewhere yeah I like that and I also think too because again death isn't ever explicitly mentioned we're just getting some deathly I'm gonna use the word vibes again (laughs) we're getting some deathly vibes but that idea of remaining elsewhere too really correlates with this idea of the Psalms of Forgotten Souls and this whole Egyptian imagery. The Egyptian imagery that is being invoked for me of the Egyptian afterlife, right? Because this person is still here. They're just not in your world. Yeah. Do we want to move on to the next part? Sure. In this part of the poem, she essentially says that by now she was supposed to be old. And she refers to herself as an aunt perched upon a padded chair. And then we get into, like, some other stuff where Sunit O'Connor is mentioned. But let's take a look at that first stanza, because we're not reading it out loud, and just kind of try and unpack it. So here I interpret she is the, the loving aunt. She's supposed to be old, but for some reason she's not. And I think that the word supposed to is supposed to be powerful. I think that it's, a, I think that to me, this section of the poem, and a lot of the poem after this talks about subverting expectations for certain identities and things like that like sure she's supposed to be sitting on perched upon her padded chair is how she is how she describes it and she's supposed to be speaking of kind of her almost like her wild party days right like they're they're talking about you know a downtown loft with great cocaine and drag shows at the old queen mary and like strobe lights and and glitter and makeup but that's not necessarily what she's come to uh, on her journey. Like this was the expectation, but I think the supposed to is supposed to make the reader feel like that's not necessarily what happened. Yeah, I think you're right. What do you take of the last uh, stanza in this section? The free tranny adds to remind us there was some place yet to fall. Uh, is, Is that referring to sex work? Yeah, I think so. At this point in her life, she's supposed to be reflecting on her party days. And then we end this section with this idea of things can always get worse. Yeah, I think that that part pairs well with the next section. Because the next section starts off with sort of 
what is actually happening. It's almost like an expectations versus reality sort of situation because the next section starts by talking about like she never expected to wake up to schools banning Harper Lee for example, or the idea that like evolution is only a fad and things like that. So I think it's almost like talking about what one expects when when they get older and like wanting to be able to reflect on their past, sort of the good and the bad. But then in actuality, what this has turned into is a world where like the worst almost is starting to happen and it's not what she expected the worst to be from what she imagined that kind of like becoming an elder in the community to be like. Yeah, she thought that the worst that could happen was that she would be forced essentially into sex work. And this poem throughout talks a lot about progressivism and like fake allyship i think towards the end which we'll get into but you're right these two things paired together make a lot of sense because it it seems like she had an expectation that things were going to get more progressive and she was going to be able to retire in her old age and like things were only going to get better and instead they've fallen and there's this stark contrast right between that expectation it's like oh things got worse. They got much worse. And that's interesting, too, because you said this book was published in, what, 2015? I think so. And so, to me, that this seems like a very large commentary on American politics and how we've gotten more and more conservative in recent years as we're getting more left on social issues. There's been a huge conservative backlash, especially around that time, right? Because Obama had been elected in 2008 and then he was reelected. And so people, more of a conservative backlash. (laughs) There were more laws coming out, more conservative laws and conservative states. Yeah. And I think too, it's interesting because to me, this also thinks about like cyclical history in some ways. Like she talks about never expecting to revisit things like parts of the AIDS crisis, but the section deals specifically with the idea of six sisters refusing to change their, refusing to take their meds and thinking about, or at the very least, that's what that specific section like reminded me of. But this idea of like revisiting history and, and I think thoughts and actions that we thought were behind us, but instead are now coming back full circle. Wow, this is dark. Sorry, guys. Sorry to bum out your pride. (laughs) I guess who... Can we look at this last stanza? And I'm just going to read this last stanza of this section out loud. Who would have thought survival might rest upon how long one holds her melody, her sobriety, her breath? What does that mean to you? Given the fact that we're looking at the cyclical nature of history and this expectation that things would get better and it's only gotten worse. And the whole idea of sobriety here is interesting, too, especially because we were just talking about because my first during the first reading, the AIDS epidemic makes a lot more sense. But I kept on thinking of the opioid epidemic, and I don't know if there's a correlation to that in the gay community or the trans community. I've only really heard of it in rural towns, but that's like. That's one of our big drug epidemics right now. And this idea of sobriety and like just giving up really resonates to me in correlation with what it feels like when you talk to 
people who are trying to remain sober with opiates. Yeah, I think that makes sense as a correlation, potentially. I mean, sharing needles is one of the ways to spread HIV. So I feel like they all kind of combine. I think what's interesting, especially about that last stanza to me, is that it's almost like we're dealing with the same problems, but the idea of surviving these things has now shifted, right? Like, um, I think especially this idea of like holding, holding melody and holding breath to me speaks a lot about identity and both protecting it, but also, I don't know, like the idea of holding one's breath feels very like stifled as well. Like, you know, hold my breath and, you know, maybe this will pass over me. Maybe this will, will go away. Um, the sobriety thing to me feels like a, a cleaner tie, I guess, between that that uh, third stanza and what we're seeing on the page that's related to sickness. But mm-hmm. um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's the, almost the surprising part here, right? Is like, if I expected things to get worse, this is not the way I expected that survival feels like it would play out. Yeah, it's like she went into this thinking there was hope. And thinking there was a path towards comfort and stability. And instead, it's a struggle. It's a literal struggle to survive. And I guess that pairs well with this idea of gone, right? How many of the people in the beginning that we're referring to who are gone or away haven't survived or haven't survived in her world for whatever reason? Yeah. This poem is broken up into five numbered sections. So we're now starting the beginning of section number two, which I think is, it's a bit of a tonal shift, right? Like we've started in this almost like very bleak expectations versus reality place. And now we're starting to talk a little bit about, to me, I think we're diving a little bit more into what that like new reality looks like. Like, what does life in 2015 look like? And it's really, it's brutal and violent. And she questions, it gets better. What does that mean? Which, of course, is, you know, what, it's like the slogan, or was at the very least in like the, the early 2010s and the late aughts about the LGBTQIA experience, you know? To me, that, I, I that, phrase specifically brings up such intense memories of like PSA commercials and things like that and health class, you know? Yeah. You know, so I don't know. I don't think that Ioki is necessarily directly talking about this, but I just looked up KFC and gay rights because it reminded me of, you know, what Chick-fil-A or whatever to see if there was like any hidden meeting there. And in 2016, KFC, one of the headlines here is KFC gained a PR win in the LGBT community because they like stood up against anti-transgender discrimination. And obviously this poem was published in 2015. So this wouldn't have happened here. I think it relates to our poem a little bit because there's one of the conversations happening right now that's been happening for a while, I'm sure, is like the idea of corporate pride and like performative activism does come back. And this poem, it just feels empty. So like the idea of a cold KFC bucket, like it doesn't do anything. But the part of corporate pride that I think really resonates with me in correlation to what we have talked about thus far with this poem is this idea that like 
pride is just this joyful, fun, fluffy thing. And what it does is it like erases all of these very real uh, factors that have to do with like uh, heteronormativity, right? And how harmful it is to society and how we can just like gloss that over if we just paint a rainbow over our, our logos. And this this poem is about like, oh, I was promised this like joyful, fun thing. But instead, what I got was like struggling to survive, eating, eating out of dumpsters, being estranged from your parents. Yeah, because this whole part is like setting up this part about not being accepted, right? And what the consequences of that are, you know, potentially experiencing homelessness, definitely experiencing scarcity and reflecting on... They're, like the last stanza of the page that we're looking at right now is this like extra bittersweet moment of like, when my parents grieve me, are they grieving me or are they grieving the child who they thought they had, you know? Uh, and that somehow feels like that's that's like a gut punch of a sentiment, you know? Yeah, and part of the reason why I bring up that KFC thing is because in this part that Maggie and I are looking at, we're looking at three stanzas. There are three corporations mentioned. There's KFC, there's Hello Kitty, and there is Disneyland. Mm -hmm. And they refer to the the writer, the author. She refers to a Disneyland daughter, right? And she was not the she was not a Disneyland daughter when her father knew her. So like this idea that she just is this person. I don't know. Like. I don't know. It just it, it reminds me of corporate pride. She is the Disneyland daughter. She is free. She is pro Disney and and sing songy and fluffy. Do you understand? What I'm talking about like this idea of gay joy being commodified. Do you see that here? I do in the rest of the poem. I see it a little bit here. Um, I think I can't remember. I think that this is the poem that she explicitly talks about Chick Fil A later. Um, yeah, she but does. to yeah. So and to me, I think that this like. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of imagery here that like sets up and I mean, sets up an image essentially, right? Like the KFC bucket really paints to you like what circumstances are, are like, you know, and Hello Kitty and Disneyland are always coded to be. They're kind of gay a little. I mean, they're corporate, but they're kind of gay. (laughs) But also like things that like female presenting people typically like and enjoy and are conditioned to enjoy because i don't know this author's sexual identity um that's true i'm sorry i should say they're kind of queer yeah um but like but like i i feel i i feel what you mean i feel like i feel like this like mentioning those three corporations in concert with each other sets you up for starting to think about some of the really pointed like corporate call-outs almost that happen especially later in the poem okay do we want to move on sure to me this reminds me of also the ways in which things we enjoy like as part of our identities and like who we are generally can often be very corporate like there's a whole legion of adults right out here who are like disney adults right like who deeply love that so she opens up this next portion talking about the fact that like we have to remember transgender people who are just who are who are just being themselves right who just like have their enjoyment to have their identities but then also what does that actually mean right like she she breaks down I think identity 
further in this section by saying that like you can't just reduce somebody to what they liked or who their like sexual orientation was or what their gender identity was because here she talks about the fact that like there was nothing simple about her or her or her or her or her so it's also like this callback to the fact that like existing in this world isn't necessarily to me just like a a brave thing right like you just exist and a lot of times people will paint your existence in some way as like a form of a defiance or things like that but in actuality like you just are who you are and that's difficult to boil down into any one simple sentence or simple thought yeah she also there's another callback to death here when we talk about the hospice lobby and i just keep looking at this because she what essentially she's doing is she's invoking all of these like very feminine beautiful ways to describe sisters essentially and what one of the lines is about a hospice lobby and she says that it's for people who are too courageous to walk inside which to me it implies that they've they were themselves and then they were killed because they chose to be themselves and out is there another meaning to that though do you think to me i read that line almost sarcastically right like because she's talking about people sending condolences people you know coming to the hospital lobby but not being like brave enough to actually walk in to step in somebody else's shoes to potentially hold somebody's hand through what is ostensibly like really difficult but I think to me that's where a lot of performative allyship comes from or even just like performative friendship in some ways like you are able to use somebody else's existence to paint yourself out as being like the brave one and you were there for them but in actuality you aren't in the room you aren't witnessing all of this and I think the speaker of this poem is painting herself out in some ways to be somebody who you know did help like she knows what she was wearing she knows what the bed sheets were like she she knows what some of those like final days looked like and yet all of these people on the outside are kind of touting themselves as 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 like these these brave people who helped that was kind of what i got from this section i think if we're looking at it in that way there that takes that means if we, if we look at it that way, I think that the lines cosmic headscarves and origami eyes take on new meaning for me. And to me, it's a sort of a glorification of these women, right? Because cosmic invokes some sort of like godliness, some deity, right? Because it's a, it's, a, it's a universe thing. And then the origami eyes to me implies some sort of fetishization. Do you understand? So like, because the, the exact words are that these people, flowers and cards, the hospice lobby, for those too courageous to walk inside. So you're reading that as sarcastic. And to me, if that's true, then I think that these, I think that line up there about the cosmic head scarves and origami eyes implies some sort of like character, like you're, you're putting some sort of character onto these women or, or you're fetishizing them. Your cart it's a caricature. You're putting a caricature onto them rather than like looking at them as real people. 
I think that's interesting because that's not how I, I see what you mean. And I think that there's probably merit to that, but I connected that line with the last stanza here, right? Like there was nothing, nothing simple about her, right? Like the cosmics are extremely complicated. Mm -hmm. Origami can be, you know, it's complicated paper folding art. And I kind of read that sarcastic line as saying, you're missing the point, you're missing the person here who is deeply complicated with like this false sense of of your own bravery. Okay, let's go into the next one. So I can I can unpack this further because I'm not sure how to read that one. So you're reading this part as sarcastic too, then I would take it. The bless those who disowned their sons. Right? Yeah. Cause I think it's a call out to like I think that this is a lot of what you were talking about earlier with like this idea of progressive culture, right? Like mm -hmm. people who say they are one thing, but their actions are another. So like the, the first, the first one is like punk, punk music, punk rock has, I think in many ways always been associated with at the very least saying fuck you to the man, so to yeah. speak, uh, and progressivism, but in actuality, like you say that you are saying the same, that you are holding up these ideals and yet you're disowning your sons and things like that. What about this um, baking cookies with raisins instead of chocolate chips? Does that simply, like, is that just a dig at raisin cookies? <laughs> um, I, I took that to mean, like, people who refuse to change, right? Like, and their refusal to change and accept their children for who they are leads them to flee because that's what's happening in the first part of this stanza. And it's like, their lack of acceptance like they can't change their thinking from raisins to chocolate chips okay another way to read that as you were saying that that i i found is this idea that like raisins are supposed to be healthier right because that's the way that it's structured here she talks about something she she says bless this person essentially even though they did this shitty thing and then she like pulls out their hypocrisy right they mm -hmm. they listen to punk rock but they can't accept their sons they uh they bake cookies with raisins instead of chocolate chips but their children had to run away they love npr and have a membership and they like to talk about the oppressed but they kicked out their daughters yeah and they say that it's not realistic to demand justice yet not for another generation or three yeah so I think that this is like a call at, at liberalism or like a um, it's performative activism, but also what we might term limit liberalism, right? Because it's like just moderate enough and it also doesn't actually do anything substantial for the oppressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She talks at the end about light a candle, loop a ribbon, which of course are like ways in which we honor people who have died, especially people who have died for like a specific reason, you know, but in actuality here, she's like, all of this performative activism just leads to, you know, the rope, the razors, the cans of gasoline, like leads to queer suicide. Oh, God. All right, let's let's move on. Here we go. I'm really I'm really ruining Harmony's day. <laughs> it's okay. My day wasn't that great to begin with. This is the beginning of um, section three in the poem numbered this is making these deaths into some sort of like mundanity to me i think right like it comes it goes and then we we get more and more mundane as as grad students uh try and study this and then 
we go all the way to like one dollar Chinese food. Like it's just another part of living and existence. Yeah, but I think too, it's also a commentary again on like this idea of like strict identity away from people who have who have like suffered in this poem and died specifically from HIV. Because then like this grad student discards the comments, the personal comments, and just creates numbers that tracks things like HIV and how it's spreading and who's contracting it. And then I feel like from there we get to the mundanity of it, the the like mundane nature of it all. And I think that also to me reminds me of and speaks to this idea of just like I don't know, any identity that isn't had like cis white heteronormative um ends up being quantified in somehow like you have to be kept track of in some way hmm not knowing that much about the AIDS epidemic I wonder if that's like I wonder if there I mean I know there is some sort of tracking system for all STDs right Mm -hmm. I wonder if there was something more there that like tracked people and numbered them that I'm not picking up on because I don't know enough about history. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I don't actually know. Because I know I know a decent amount about, like, what current HIV AIDS works looks like from the time that I spent working in the public health sector. But I don't know. I don't, I don't know if historically that would have been true just because there was so little time and attention and resources given to even trying to figure out what was happening with the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, But I'm wondering if this is almost a commentary on the idea that like currently we're almost going too far, uh, maybe not in another direction, but like in a similar direction, right? Like, sure, we're tracking, we're quantifying, we've got grant proposals and things like that. But in actuality, we're still not seeing the scope of the horror because we're removing the person from the from the the medicine essentially yeah i also think too that this um number three the start of it might also be playing with the phrase like to become a statistic Mm -hmm. you know like don't become another statistic and if this is her way of playing with that because that's literally what's happening. Like the person is getting removed and they are just becoming another statistic. And that's what that phrase is supposed to mean. Like, don't be another statistic because then you're just proving them right. Right. Like that's often used for oppressed people. Like don't become another statistic because you have this, this certain identity. Yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that ties into with, a conversation we had earlier and kind of ties into the next part as well of like, because at the beginning of the poem, she talks about sisters who refuse to take their medication. Right. Um, And then this part of the poem talks about almost like, like, again, like avoid becoming another statistic, things like that depersonalized care. And I feel like the, the section after this talks about, why people don't feel cared for even though ostensibly like the science is better or whatever or like we're finally putting time and resources into this which like is in many ways not adequate but like it starts by talking about this and the scholars go and essentially the scholars talk about the fact that it's like 
their opinions about you are what matter. And if you aren't sure who, who you are, I don't think you're sure who you are or like X, Y, and Z thing. It somehow complicates and invalidates all of this. And it's about like not listening to your patient, to your person, you know? Yeah. Not giving people autonomy over their own bodies. Yeah, and identities and lives. Which is a huge thing that we have, like, we know statistically happens. The science is out. People, like, any any sort of marginalized identity does not get as good of healthcare from medical professionals because they're less likely to be listened to and their pain or their, um, yeah, their pain, their own diagnoses, their symptoms are less likely to be taken seriously. That's yeah. true of essentially any marginalized identity. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, of course, people are going to be distrustful when historically medicine has excluded you. It For some people, especially, you know, like Black people of color experimented illegally on you. Like, of course, people don't want to be and don't trust doctors who say that they're going to help but treat you and your identity like it's an other and treat you like you're just another number and another case file. Yeah, and so this one specifically, because this is obviously, you know, talking about trans people, I, I think that this this poem specifically is probably a lot about trans women. Yeah. The idea of sureness, the word sure in this section that Maggie and I are looking at comes up a lot. <laughs> when, and it's like very obviously alluding to the fact that you need to go through a lot of bullshit to get any sort of like anything done in terms of transition. Mm -hmm. It also too, for me reading it as a cis woman reminded me a lot about the way women are treated when they try to get their like tubes tied because there's a similar sort of, you can't possibly know what's best for you and your body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that's really potentially a poignant comparison is that this uh, it's this idea of, I think it's also this idea of like almost cover your ass too from from the, the standpoint of the person who's speaking in quotes here, right? Because like the whole point isn't about the fact that you not being sure would even like have a, a negative effect on you. It's that you not being sure has a negative effect on me as the medical practitioner here, which is like even more levels of fucked up. <laughs> Yeah, because it's not their bodies. Yeah. yeah, and it shouldn't be their choice, and yet they're they're centering themselves in that conversation. Yeah. All right, I'm ready to move on to the next part. So the next part takes us out of the doctor's office, and I think is really where like a lot of the attacks on liberalism and performative activism come in. Yeah, so right away, the first stanza talks about protesting. And the words used are get authentic, right? And then they there's a protest chant um, quoted. And then there, it talks about quoting people uh, like Frida or Audre Lorde. And so right now we're, we're getting right into the like, well, this is clearly Maggie's point before, like you can clearly see some sort of sarcastic tone going on, but this is clearly... Like the sarcastic tone is saying, well, this is how we we start to change this. You know, we go protest and we go take the identities of famous women of color <laughs> and we start quoting them, which is funny because like I love Audre Lorde quotes and I love Frida Kahlo. Who doesn't? Right. And then they talk about just dancing righteously and food trucks and auto tune and um, fair trade and anarchy. So it's not even just like a 
comment on liberalism anymore. It's a comment on performative activism. Yeah, yeah. And I think also, in some ways, this also reminds me of a commentary on like pride specifically right Mm -hmm. now. And I think also the idea of righteously fantasizing over somebody else is like very fetishy to me. But also like this idea of the auto-tune, the food trucks, you know, because all of this ends with this idea of revolution of blood. To me, it's a very clear compare and contrast between like protests now and potentially previous riot. It's also a call out on like making people martyrs, right? Like yeah. dead queens are easier to pray to. Yeah, exactly. Because what martyrdom does is it allows us to party and still live in our our safe little lives that we aren't affected by, but it doesn't actually solve the problem of woman dying. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's it's talking about like lost roots of like protest to me and uh, specifically like lost roots of what pride used to be, which I feel like was a conversation I heard a lot, especially last year uh, because pride coincided. Well, I mean, pride as we think of it co- contemporarily today was canceled pretty much across the board because of the pandemic but then on top of that it 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 coincided with all of the the protests about George Floyd and I feel like there was a lot of conversation that I saw last year about the fact that like the first prides were riots right and they were specifically pride riots against police violence and police brutality so to me that I mean again this was written like five six years ago but it feels so topical to what's been happening over the last 18 months yeah it does feel really topical and we we partially get a commentary on on pride and like what it's devolved to but then we also get this idea like you were talking about before of martyrdom and so like yes this is what pride is now but as we're partying we're always Sure, to be like, yes, thank you, Stonewall. Thank you. I forget uh, the woman's name who started the Stonewall riots. <laughs> Perhaps you remember. Is it like Martha P. Johnson or something? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Go Harmony. ADHD brain for the win, right? But like, yeah, there's this sort of glorification um, and this remembrance of revolution, but it's not something that exists today. But like, we're going to pretend like it exists while we party, right? The yeah. whole idea of revolution, a blood sport, right? Like people are hungry for blood just as long as it's not their blood and as long as they get to keep living their comfortable lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it ties to, I think, because it's like, because this whole section is like meanwhile, right? So it's like also ignoring the people who are, at like who are part of the queer community who are still suffering and dying today. But like, that's not what we want to fight about or or fight for or commemorate either. Well, I think that too, though, it it sounds like there is some sort of commemoration, but it's not substantial and, again, doesn't do anything, right? Yeah, because commemoration is an action. Yeah, like we can say, go Martha P. Johnson all we want, and that doesn't do anything to stop. We're not the ones starting the riots. And the people who are, are basically sacrifices. Yeah. It becomes a blood, it, it becomes a spectatorship. Yeah, or or they're ignored, right? Like the people who, who become statistics, like in the first part of this section. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I'm ready. I'm ready to go to number 10. Well, this section is really, really short. Like this whole thing just kind of sums up the idea that like the way we're living our lives now is it, it again, it's that mundanity, right? Like 
we're still at the end of the day even when like these pride and protests are over we're still going back to like the status quo in some ways i feel like i need to see the 11th one right because i'm really fascinated by the imagery here of the plum yeah the of the plum and the seeds and whatever clings to the seeds i feel like that's symbolic but i don't know how yet without looking at the next section which is not related so i don't know (laughs) what is going on with the seeds and the clinging to the seeds is that symbolic maggie i feel like so so this last image here talks about spitting out the spitting out the the flesh of the plum because it's clinging too tightly to the seed and it's it's in another life right so it's like in another life to me it almost reminds me of this idea that like people are able to get to the heart of matters and we're distracted by whatever's left that's good in the world right like the skin and flesh of a plum which is too tart and we shouldn't want it and we shouldn't swallow it down and we shouldn't accept it but that's what we're taking that's kind of what I'm getting out of it oh interesting see as you were saying that for some reason I was thinking about plums um and like what that little that little fruit fruit fruity flesh that clings onto it is and it kind of reminded me of if we go back to uh the the third the third picture you sent me I don't know what part that's in um the idea of the mucus I don't know if that's me a stretch though, but that's what it reminded me of. Oh yeah. So like I saw the fleshiness as less I, I like your reading and I think that's more clear and succinct than whatever I'm try like thinking of. But I saw the fleshiness as the sickness. But yeah, so maybe that corresponds with what you're talking about. I think it might, yeah. I think something else too that's interesting here is that it's specifically a plum because stone fruit are available for such they have such a short growing time and they have to grow in very specific places. And they're one of the few foods now that in our society, we haven't figured out how to like keep available, like in the U S for example, in grocery stores all year round, like any kind of stone fruit, plums, peaches, nectarines, they're only available in the summer. We don't know how to keep them long-term. So I think also potentially the plum was purposeful too, in this idea that like the plum has a short life, and we can't, I don't know, like, we can't, we can't waste our opportunity to get to, like, the, this seed to get to the heart of it. Yeah, and the seed is important, too, right? If we're able to take the fleshy part off, we're able to preserve the seed better. And then we can grow it and grow more plums. Yeah, and maybe plums that aren't too tart. All right, let's move on to part four. And this is the actual part four. Yep. So right away, we get this very real assertion about not being... Gl- this, this, the author or not the author the speaker of the poem is not gluten-free they're not cruelty-free and to me we can assume that the speaker is trans this is like a direct comment on everything we were just talking about before like you can pretend to be vegan you can say that you're free trade but I'm not and I'm the person being harmed by this I think too the the speaker feels very unapologetically themselves too right because like there's certain things here that don't necessarily have to do with with activism either right like they're not going to pop pop up the volume she's not going to get wasted or have sex with you at burning man like she doesn't have to i think that there's also this idea that like if you're 
like on the left or whatever, so to speak, if you support LGBTQIA rights, if you're, if you are LGBTQIA, then you automatically become like this certain kind of person with a certain kind of preference for life. And here the speaker is asserting like, I'm not that person, you know, the, the line, but I am not cruelty free for me was really like the hook line and sinker of being like, Oh yeah, this is probably one of my new favorite poets because like what a line. Um, I know. And my favorite is fixie donate to Indiegogo Lego Urego, which is all one word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so like, I think it's also this assertion of like, there's so many ways in which society tries to prescribe and tell you who you are, you know, or like assumes who you are. Um, and this speaker is just going to be unapologetically themselves. But I think that like circling back to earlier themes in the poem, it's not like she wants to be called brave for it, right? Like just being who she is, isn't necessarily like a brave thing to do. This is just who she is. And she's not going to talk like a pirate. Yeah. All right, let's move on. <laughs> right. Okay. So right away, she's saying, I'm not any of these things. I drive a Honda <laughs> and eat frozen food. Briars is mentioned again. So like now we're getting back into this corporation thing. So maybe my reading about corporate pride was a little bit too modern and doesn't actually play into this because no, it doesn't. It ha but then the Chick-fil-A thing. I think that like, huh. I think that there's a certain example of like, to me, it feels like a, 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 maybe not necessarily corporate pride, but like there is a certain level of which like our preferences as people, I think are often tied to corporations, right? Like she specifically mm -hmm. wants the Briars ice cream, caramel praline crunch, which I don't blame her for. That's a top tier ice cream, but I disagree. Briars is trash. What? Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just going to throw it out there. You heard it here first. <laughs> Continue. So I think that also there's like a, there's like, I think an interesting commentary here on being on like wanting to just enjoy what you enjoy, but then also to people who aren't being actively harmed by enjoying that thing, you know, like that idea of Chick-fil-A, I am my own guilty pleasure, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't I'm know too, how I feel about that I'm though, because I think that like, for this. well, here's the thing, here's the thing, right? Like, a part of the whole idea of fair trade, right, is that like all of these corporations are actively harmful to people. Yeah. They just might not be harmful to people directly in the States. But like, isn't Briars a part of Hershey's or something like that? And Hershey's has like child labor. Yeah, all chocolate companies have child labor for the most part. Um, yeah. So like, I don't know. I guess that like, Maybe maybe this idea of the Chick-fil-A thing, maybe this is also a call out at performative activism. Like you you miss Chick-fil-A, right? That's a that's an implication that you're not eating it anymore. And the the speaker is saying, I don't need to do that. I am my own guilty pleasure. Like I don't feel guilty about doing these things. I'm just here trying to survive. I think too, like there's an implication here of like because who I am is trying to constantly be forced out of the narrative. Like there is this level of like, uh, I'm already like just existing is already my guilty pleasure. Right. 
Yeah. But I wonder how that may be at odds with the idea of like a brave existence and sort of knocking that idea at the beginning. Cause I don't want to fall into that trap. You know, I feel like that to me felt very clear. Um, but maybe these are different because I think that sometimes when people describe others as being brave for just like, you know, being human, it's also, it's always somebody else ascribing that to you. Right. But here she's saying, I am my own guilty pleasure. Um, it's an assertion she's making for herself. Yeah. And here's the thing, like, you don't have to be brave to have a guilty pleasure. The whole idea of a guilty pleasure is that you're indulging. And this whole idea of what this whole section that we are reading right now, from Honda to Nighttime Promenade is about indulgence. It's about this person who is going to do all of these things, even though it's not cool to do all of those things. And it's quoted somehow as being anti-queer. Um, and like, yeah, people are out there missing Chick-fil-A because Chick-fil-A is their guilty pleasure, right? Um, and this person doesn't need that because this person is reveling in themselves. And like, it's guilty because society tells them that they can't be themselves. And I know I'm using the they, them pronoun. Even though the author uses she, her, we don't actually know the pronouns of the speaker. I think it's safe to assume they're she, her, because I think it's coded very femme. But yeah. Yeah. And I think too, like something interesting to me about this last stanza here relating to all of this is that there's almost a double meaning, right? Like the security guard, the cashier, the cart with one stuck wheel, like none of them can stop her in her mission to just like, live her life and get her damn ice cream and drive her Honda. But I think also there's this, it reminds me a little bit too of like the protest call out as well in the sense that like one person making one choice isn't going to be like the rise or fall of the planet, you know, or like a societal movement, which isn't to say that you shouldn't make the best choices that you can from my perspective. But, like, there is, I think, a sense of, like, one person out there living their life doing their best. Yeah, I agree. I think that the idea of survival here is very potent, especially because there's been so much, especially because we can assume that the speaker is a trans woman. And there's been so much in the poem talking about how trans women are forgotten or glorified or martyred. And how that doesn't actually do anything to help. So yeah, I think that's astute, Miss Maggie. All right. Here we're talking about what has changed. And this is interesting when comparing it before. Because at the beginning of this poem, we got we got the, the grief. And then we got this idea of things were supposed to be different. I was supposed to be comfortable. <laughs> things were supposed to get better. And this seems like a sort of almost acknowledgement that it what it, it has gotten better, right? Like, there are these people who wouldn't even accept the idea of transgender before, like, and wouldn't suspect our speaker's identity. Yeah. Uh, and I think also it talks about, like, inclusion and exclusion, too, a little bit in like the the larger LGBTQIA community, right? Like this last line here, five years ago, the weaver unraveled a rainbow at my name, where people fit in society and, and what boxes and things like that and how 
acceptance is like a almost it's almost like a start stop right like and so 20 years ago this was happening and 10 years ago this was happening and five years ago this was happening oh yeah you're right okay so it sounds like maybe then it's building into a we thought 20 years ago that this would be different and then we thought that like 15 years later it would be different and it's still not it still wasn't different yeah or like it was like there's there's ways in which it's different right because i do think that there's an implication right that like 10 years you know for example like the the composer couldn't harmonize with transgender couldn't harmonize transgender with friend right like i think that there's an implication here that those things are changing but i think that it pushes back against the idea that of like black and white world white right like things can be almost simultaneously improving in some ways and getting worse in others you know like the idea again of like it gets better well does it you know better doesn't always move in a straight line better is often like a zigzag of things that improve in some places and maybe you're taking you feel like you're taking steps back in others to go back to the stanza that we read just before that i think my during my first reading when we were talking about when it's talking about not being cruelty free my first reading of that was that like our speaker doesn't feel like she's doing enough either a little bit or she's not she's not really contributing to it either she's just trying to survive i think that makes a lot of sense especially when we move on to the next part here Mm -hmm. in conjunction like the it it opens with this idea that like someday her car isn't going to pass the smog test or that uh, the speaker might go blind or or and things like that i think it really speaks to this idea that like we're doing what we can in the moment and that feels better sometimes in that specific moment but like in the grand scheme of things are we in a forward zig are we in a backward zag like where are we you know yeah and the speaker specifically talks about being judged um and how that might happen but then yeah but then this part ends with this idea that like even if the speaker is judged, it's not going to like change their reveling in themselves. They're still going to be themselves no matter what. And that idea of judgment, I know that like Egyptian death is not specifically stated in this poem. And I know that I keep going back to it, but it reminds me of the first part, number one, (laughs) that part that Maggie and I read out loud about the Egyptian astrologer encanting psalms of forgotten souls. That reminds me so much of the Egyptian afterlife, right? Because one of the big things with the Egyptian afterlife is that like you go and you stand on a scale and they weigh everything that you've done on in your life and you're you're judged to see which afterlife you will go to. Yeah, and I think that that relates to this part too, potentially with like this idea that others may mark me with bad weather and omens and thinking about there's like a balance to strike here, right? With this idea that like we're all doing what we can you know being who we are and having to balance that weight with this idea that maybe it's not enough other people are are saying that it's not enough in some ways that I'm not enough but like the speaker at the end of this part finds finds peace to me at the very least like this the last couplet here is very just like tranquil and at peace yeah but they're tranquil and not at peace I think the implication is because they're themselves yeah maybe they didn't do the best that they could have maybe they weren't fair trade but at the end of the day like none of those things allowed them to survive and they they're out there and they survived and even if they don't survive they're going to end 
up being themselves, even if they're judged poorly for it later in life. Like maybe their life wasn't as worthy as it could have been, right? Because that's the whole idea of judgment at the end. It's like to see how worthy your life was, but it doesn't matter because at least they were their goddamn selves. And that's all that they they've been fighting for or not even fighting that's like that that's all they're trying to do is just be themselves yeah <laughs> although i think uh, the next part it does explicitly refer to the speaker as a her so what she, she oh, is her but yeah is this the speaker though i think so how do we know that i mean yeah sorry guys i'm reading this specifically in part so i can't see everything as we go on i don't know that this is specifically the speaker though but yes I think that it is safe to assume that the speaker is a her. So to me, this reads kind of like a eulogy again to all trans women. Is that what you're getting to? Yeah, I think that to me, this this section relates more to this idea of like judgment and outside forces trying to press you into being or like doing things because her saviors are are leaving her spirit guide is no longer telling her to to kneel and it's not until those things go away that she can ponder which which she has become i think that this is the idea okay so i'm getting tripped up because i'm me on the who can ponder which which she has become because to me the idea of which is very much an outsider right and so like who can ponder what type of other she is is how I'm reading that and I'm trying to make sense of that with everything else so until we start but like why does it matter to me it seems like all of those one two three four five six seven lines don't really matter right because at the end she she still would give her dance to love what does that mean give her dance to love what i'm very i remember reading this and getting like uh confused during the first round too like what i don't what does that mean um (laughs) maggie's like harmony you're asking a lot of me right now I think that, okay, so I, I think to, like, start with the witch thing, I think that I read that differently, almost. Like, I think that I read the idea of being a witch as, like, understanding one's power. Because you're right, like, witches have been ostracized and witches have been othered. Um, but it was because people feared their, like, ostensible power, or at least that's what it was on the surface. Okay. And their, like, ability to change things. So I'm kind of reading this as, until I am uninfluenced by others until I'm just myself how can I understand my power and yet still even with that power I choose to like give my time and my energy to love oh okay 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 yeah thank you Maggie that makes sense so then if that's the case dance here is being read as like life which reminds me of the spiral dance which uh which you folks may know about right because that's it's the dance of life essentially um and and goddessness okay and then the spirit guide is is that's why the spirit guide is important and that's why saviors are important right because like no one can save you no one is going to save you the spirit guide is asking you to worship them i'm now confused about the muscle car i don't what is what is that the spirit guide isn't i don't think the spirit guide's asking 
the the speaker to worship the spirit guide the spirit guide is asking the person to kneel before every muscle car blowing down the street which to me reminds me of this idea of like or or reciting every reason why one should which to me is like kneeling down towards like dominant very like masculine society right like because to me muscle cars are so like I think of muscle cars and I think of like people who are trying really hard to convince everyone else that they've got big dicks, right? Like that's the joke. You hear it yeah. roaring down the street. It's what's popular. It's making a lot of fucking noise. And it's easy to sort of take that and be like, okay, like I think societally it's like, okay, this is what's making the most noise. So like, this is what's either right or wrong or X or Y. And I think when she breaks away from that and understands that like guidance and, and, other people's opinions can be important but it's me and my power that I need to respect and I choose to give my dance to love like that's I think where she's able to find like a way forward and closure from all of this because to the idea of giving a dance to love I think to me relates to like the like historical terminology about witches too just because it's like when women in past centuries were you know, asked to like court people or, and stuff like it was always you give a dance to this person and you give a dance to this person. Um, but it was rarely at your discretion, right? It was what your your parents said, like, you're going to go court this person or court that person. And here she's breaking away and she's deciding like, I get to choose who I give my dance to and I give it to love. Ah, okay. Well, thank you. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's the wrong reading. But that's what I was getting out of like this section that feels to me, I guess, connected with a lot of the other things that were just happening. Okay. All right. Let's move on. So we're at number five now. To me, this section is really just, it's the shortest of the five sections, right? Like it's only one page. It's only a couple of stanzas. And to me, it's just like this continual idea of I know who I am and I and I and I know what I'm doing and I am reveling in whatever normalcy I can kind of pull out of life for myself right like I just want to pull a sweater out of my closet and go for groceries and stop at CVS and it doesn't matter if the composer or the astrologer or the weaver doesn't understand me or tries to change who I am um dust is never going to settle upon this soul which is the the title of the entire collection i want to focus a little bit on from the weaver to upon the soul and and reread that again sorry no worries because it says that the weaver may sever the threads of youth and then it talks about cutting another inconvenient thread so is this person cutting away their own threads of youth like or is I, I guess, okay, so now I'm confused about who the pronoun is evolving to, because it says, even as she cuts another inconvenient thread, are we referring to the reader? But then we talk about threads of self. The weaver may sever the threads of youth, threads of self. I read the weaver as, like, the like the Greek, the Greek mythology three fates, right? With their loom, their tapestry, and they cut threads to, like, shape your life. Um, so is she like is that referring to the weaver though is that or is that referring to the speaker is what I'm wondering who who is she I, th I think she in this case is referring to the weaver 
um, okay. severing the threads of the speaker's youth, trying to sever the threads of self, you know, even, even as the world is trying to cut my threads inconveniently, I'm I, like, I'm not going to let the bullshit get me, get me down, essentially. My dust shall never settle upon a soul. Yeah, I think, I think that makes sense. I think too, like the threads of youth, we have like the idea of aging, but then to me that also reads as like, I'm cutting away these things that once made me, right? When I'm severing my ties from youth. Yeah. Because youth often is associated with, like, foolishness and we're growing, right? So to me, it, it almost suggests some sort of growth happening. But I don't know how I feel about that reading because we have the composer, the astrologer, and the weaver again. And before the composer, astrologer, and weaver weren't our friends in this poem. They were kind of jerks. I don't think they are. I don't think they're meant to be, right? I think that, I think that like the growth here is saying potentially before that judgment got to me, right? But now it doesn't matter if the composer, you know, abandons the backbeat or the the astrologer won't look at me it doesn't matter what the weaver does or what fate does dust isn't going to settle upon me i think too because we started this kind of with death imagery and we're ending it talking about dust in the soul it's sort of like and we're talking about severing youth it's sort of like I'm not going to die. Like it's sort of a call to immortality, I feel, or like I'm going to keep existing. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Okay. All right. Is there anything else we want to talk about with this poem? I don't think so. I feel like we did a pretty deep dive into it because we sort of went section by section. Um, Welcome to another episode of Harmony and Maggie struggle with poetry. (laughs) I just, I guess I just want to emphasize again as like a final thought, like, please go check out this poetry collection from your library, from your bookstore. It's called Why Dust Shall Never Settle Upon the Soul by um, Rika Aoki. And it's like, it's really good. (laughs) This poem was, I think, really super multifaceted. Yeah. I'm sure that we just scratched the surface, but... This is what our brains interpreted from it. <laughs> our very tired brains. And this was English class with uh, Dr. Maggie. <laughs> do you think that this was a feminist poem? Yes. I do too. Most certainly. Yeah. <laughs> this was a very feminist poem. We got a lot here about like, it's just a woman who's going to keep keep being herself. She's going to keep being herself and she's going to keep surviving. And Yeah. She's going to be herself at any cost, essentially. And society keeps telling her not to. And she's like, no, nah, I'm going to I'm gonna do it anyway. Like, this is me. Can't, can't not be me. <laughs> no matter how dangerous. Because it's, I can't not be me. Okay, uh, uh, homework? Yeah, what did you do that made the world a better place this week, Harmony? That's a good question. What, what day is today? Today is Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> what did I do that made the world a better place? I didn't donate my time or anything. I I gave I give my seat to to people who look like they need seats on the train, and that's that's about it. You know, my my struggle this week has kind of been survival. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. 
What about you, Mackie? I donated my time to help a museum in my area who serves like frontline workers deal with some financial issues, which sounds like a much bigger thing than it is because I'm, you know, a museum worker. So <laughs> donating my time and expertise on that level is, is a, a kind of a low ask, but I did it anyways. And I felt like at the very least it, it made somewhat of a difference. That's awesome. That's very good. Okay, what are we talking about next week? We're talking about Savage the Bones! Yeah, we are talking about Savage the Bones, which is a really good book. I hope you like it. Yay! Is that all, folks? Do you want to talk about what you're reading? Oh, that's right! Yeah, okay. Um. So I'm reading a book for my class, my YA Lit class. It's called it's actually really good, and I'm going to talk to Maggie about it, reading it on the podcast, maybe, even though it's YA and she hates YA. I think that she would like this book. I've been reading a lot of YA this year. You'd be surprised. Oh, okay. I'm reading YA right now. I think you'd like this book. It's not fantasy, which I know is our favorite, but very good. It's about um, it's about two girls, and one's in the Dominican Republic for a large part of the book, and one's in New York City, and they have a connection that I can't tell you about without spoiling. All right, so it's called Clap When You Land, and it's very cool because there's, like, poetic verse throughout, even though it's prose, and it's it's cool. <laughs> yeah, Elizabeth Acevedo is a spoken word poet. We're reading a different one of her books on the podcast oh, next season. Very yeah, cool. Uh, With the Fire on High is by the same author. Oh, I'm reading that. I'm going to read that one, too, for class. <laughs> well, then you'll be ahead. It's a fabulous book. <laughs> That's awesome. That makes sense that she's a spoken word poet. I'm also reading this through audiobook and it's like one of those where I'm like, oh, this one is actually like this was made for this medium. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. She usually narrates her own audiobooks too, I think. Sorry, you got me really excited. I really, she's a great author. Yeah, so I'm reading that. I'm still reading Honey Girl because I've been reading like 20 million uh, books. And then I started reading because I found her at the bookshop like on Saturday, I think or Sunday, or Monday, I don't know. I'm also reading um, a thing that I'm going to try to get Maggie to read on the podcast someday, again. Uh, and it's called, it's like, it's like this little theory uh, book, but it's it's not dry. It's called Females by Andrea Longshu, I think. Shoe? Females by... I like how you said you're going to try and get me to read it like I didn't already agree. We should add it to next season the other day. <laughs> Andrea Long too. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I forgot. I'm very tired, Maggie. It's all good, homie. Yeah, that's that's it today. What about you, Maggie? What are you reading? Uh, I'm reading One Dark Throne by Kendara Blake, which is uh, YA. Yeah, Harmony's going to be shocked. I've read a lot of YA this year and actually really enjoyed most of it. I've really like, I think, rediscovered as an adult what sort of YA works for me and it's been delightful I also think that the YA genre might be getting better I don't know if it was this good when we were young I mean to be fair it was kind of newer when we were young but yeah I think that like it's just gotten better I think so too and I think also like there's been a larger conversation about like there's like younger YA and older YA and things like that. And I think for me, at least right now, I tend to gravitate towards stuff that's aimed at like a slightly older young adult audience, because to me, I'm definitely much more in touch with myself at like 7, 18, 17, 18, 19 than I am with myself at like 12 or 13. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
so it's like easier for me to wrap my mind I think about around like what's happening with the characters and really connect but that's been like my my one of my reading journeys this year is like re falling in love with YA it's been delightful I had that too in the beginning of the pandemic but mostly it was because I was like I need queer witches and the YA genre it's it's just bountiful with queer witches queer witches yeah Yeah, it's true there's a lot of them (laughs) all right i think that's all folks we've gotten very long for this tiny supposedly supposed to be tiny episode all right bye bye don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app you can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel-girls-book-club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter. And you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.